We just pray. Lord, we just take a moment to stop and ponder those words we just sing. We glorify you alone. You alone are the king of mercy and the king of glory, the king of grace. There is no one like you. And as Dave just said, what a privilege it is for us to be able to come bursting into your presence whenever we wish. Not because we deserve it, but because of the wonder of Jesus. And we get to celebrate you and worship you and honour you because you alone are worthy. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, a word that we often take for granted, a word that many brothers and sisters around the world don't even have, would you open our eyes and ears to see and hear you alone? We ask that you would enlarge our vision of you today so that our lives would be different. We pray it in your name. Amen. Every summer I read a stack load of novels while we're camping. It's one of the ways that I personally relax and enjoy myself. So I go to the local library and I just grab a load of books. And because they're library books, if they're garbage, after a few pages, I just throw them to the side and grab another one and read. But I love just getting lost in a really good story. And among all of the novels I read, there was one particular one that that really grabbed me. Um, I wasn't reading it while we were camping. It was actually when we were back from camping. And um, it was actually not a library book. It's a book that Elaine had bought and read and had been so blown away by she gave it to Roland to read, and he was amazed by it, so they gave it to Rochelle to read, and she got blown away, and so got it handed to me um, after camping towards the end of January, beginning of February, and, and I just finished reading it a couple of weeks ago, and it blew my mind as well. The story is called The Girl They Left Behind, and it's a novel, but it's based on the true story of the author's mother. She grew up in Bucharest in Romania, which is the photo in the background of the slide. And she was born right before the dawn of the Second World War. And the interesting thing about her is that she was born to Jewish parents. And if you know anything about World War II, you may know that Romania, in the opening months of World War II, had a coup. The king was deposed and a dictator who was sympathetic to the Nazis came to power. He allied his country with Germany to the extent that Romania was probably the staunchest ally of Nazi Germany through the entire course of the war, which of course spelt really bad news if you were a Jew in Romania. And so this little girl was born, and after the coup was a toddler in the midst of a Nazi-sympathetic country called Romania. In January of 1941, there was a series of riots over the course of a number of days and nights where armed bands, gangs, mobs were roaming the streets of Bucharest. It became known as the Bucharest Pogrom. And thousands of Jewish men and women and children were hauled out of their homes. And they were robbed and beaten and tortured. Women were raped 
hundreds were slaughtered. It was the worst massacre of Jews in Romania during the war. And in the middle of this pogrom that happened in January of 1941, this little girl was fleeing through the streets with her two parents. They were Jewish. There was no hope. And they didn't know what to do. The parents were beside themselves. Authorities had turned up at their home to arrest them. They'd climbed out the back window. They were on the run. They could hear the sounds of violence and gangs on streets all around them. And it ended up the parents got so desperate that they did the unthinkable. They sat their little girl, three years old, on the streets of an orphanage. Sorry, not an orphanage. Oh, the streets of an, uh, the steps of an apartment. And they said, darling, stay here. We'll be right back. And they walked around the corner, and she never saw her parents again. They decided that the best chance for their daughter to live was to not be caught with Jewish parents. And so they bravely but desperately left her behind on the steps of this apartment. She was found a few minutes later by one of the inhabitants, a woman who took her in for the night and the next day took her to an orphanage from where a few months later she was adopted by a Romanian couple who couldn't have their own kids who were amazing parents to this girl. And it's her story that is fictionalised but based on the truth of her story in this amazing book. On the back cover of this book is a phrase that comes from this little girl's parents. They said in anguish and despair, we release this child into the hands of God with hope and faith that she may be saved. If you're a parent, actually, you don't even need to be a parent, do you? To just be moved by that and the tragedy and hardship. And what was interesting for me is I was finishing this novel, this this story of these parents and this heart-wrenching step with this little girl And at the same time, I was starting to delve into the story of the Exodus, and I was coming to the story that we're looking at today in Exodus chapter 2 and the birth of Moses. And there is an uncanny resemblance, as I said last week, to the background of this story and Nazi Germany and Europe and the horrendous Holocaust against the Jews. There's a remarkable resemblance to the background of the Exodus story and the tyrant who ruled Egypt at this time and the hatred of God's people, the Israelites, and the genocide that takes place there. And so I want us to dive into this story today, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and I would love you to follow it along. So if you've got a Bible with you or you've got an app on the phone, it would be really cool if you would follow along as we walk through the story together. There's two things that I want to point out as we, uh, before we dive into the story about the characters. Obviously, at the heart of the story is a little baby that is going to be born. He's going to grow up to be the deliverer of the Exodus, and we'll find out at the end of the story his name is Moses. But he's not really, he's at the heart of the story, but he's not really one of the key characters of the story in terms of taking action. There are three characters who take action in this story. And there's a couple of fascinating things about these three main characters. Firstly, all three of them are women. Now, in a patriarchal world, that's quite different anyway, but it's especially funny in this story because, as we know, a genocide's been launched by the king of Egypt, and it's against all of the boys because he's devastated, he's scared stiff 
that oh, the men of Israel are going to come enemy soldiers against him. So he's fearful of all the men, so he slaughters all the boys, and he thinks the girls and the women are, are quite safe. And the irony is his whole undoing is going to happen because of these three remarkable women. So there's this irony to the story. The other thing about these three main characters, these women, is we don't know their names. They're anonymous. Later, we'll be told two of their identities, his mother and his sister. We'll be told their names later in the story. The third one, we don't know her name at all. So for now, I'm simply going to call them the mother, the sister, and the princess. So it's almost like a joke, you know, a mother, a sister, and a princess walked into a pub. But it's, it's not that funny, actually. But it's a story about these three amazing women that we're going to see, the mother, the sister, and the princess, and what they do in a context similar to this story of a girl that got left behind. We're going to see how God uses these three incredible women who are anonymous. Mainly, I think, to put the spotlight on the baby whose name comes at the end. But we're going to watch this remarkable story. So if you've got it in front of you, Exodus chapter 2. And what I want to invite you to do is, is try and read the story through fresh eyes. If you grew up reading Bible stories, if you've grown up in the church, if you've watched The Prince of Egypt, you know the story already. But I want you to try and watch this story unfold with fresh eyes because it's actually quite staggering. So it begins this way. Verse 1 of Exodus 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman or a, a daughter of Levi and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. So in the context of oppression and enslavement, there's some bright moments. There's a marriage that takes place. A man and a woman from the same tribe of Israel have fallen in love or their parents have put them together. Either way, they marry, she falls pregnant, and she has a baby. Now, it sounds like this is their first baby, but we're going to meet in a few verses' time an older sister. We're going to find out later on there's also an older brother. But this baby, the spotlight is on because he has been born under this death sentence. Because what's significant is the text highlights she gave birth to a son. It's a baby boy. So we're to read the story in light of this opening or this closing verse from the previous chapter where the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had given this order to all his people. This was an overt order of genocide. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Very next verse, this man and woman marry and they have a baby son. So he's under a death sentence. So this baby is born. That's the introduction. And then the first of these three great characters steps forward. It's the mother. So we read midway through verse 2. Uh, about the mother, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So this baby has been born, and now the mother hides the boy. And I'm going to call him the boy because at this point he has no name, but all the way through, we read a lot in our English translations, baby, in the original Hebrew text, it's boy, it's a boy, it's a boy. Just so we're keeping this death sentence in our minds. So the baby, uh, the mother hides the boy. Hides him in her home for the first three months. Now, I don't know how many of you, uh, as parents, 
remember having kids that would never settle, maybe slightly colicky, trying desperately to just get that baby to jolly well be quiet or to settle or to, for goodness sake, can we please get like six hours sleep in a row or something? You remember those days? Imagine trying to settle a baby not only with the pressure of wanting to get some sleep and everything else, but knowing that if that baby screams too loud, soldiers are going to come banging on the door and are going to throw that infant into the Nile. I mean, there's a pressure on every uh, set of parents of a newborn anyway. Imagine ramping that on. But somehow, this mother and her husband, or it's the mother that's emphasized here as a character, they hide this baby for three months I think that's a miracle in and of itself. But then it gets to the point where they can't hide him any longer. And so they place him in this basket. Literally, it's an ark. The only time outside of Noah's story the word is used. It's a mini version of Noah's ark. She lays him in this tiny ark and places him in the reeds. Now, why does she do that? Well, verse 2 tells us, if you have a look in the middle of the verse... She saw that he was a fine child. Most uh, commentators and many Bible versions will translate that as a good child or a handsome child, like he was a really beautiful baby. But I'm not convinced that that's the sole reason that she hid the baby. One professor, Peter Enns, writes this. Are we really to conclude that Moses' mother simply saw how good-looking he was? Are we to presume that the child's mother would not have hidden him if he'd been ugly? And I think that's a fair question. I'm not sure the point is that the baby was beautiful. And then he actually asks at the end, and what mother would not think her newborn son was handsome, you know? It's like, I think there's more to it than simply this was a particularly beautiful baby. In fact, the way that the Hebrew text is framed is making a significant hint here. It literally says, she saw that he was good that I believe is an echo of the creation story. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And she saw that he was good. See, in the creation stories, when God creates light and creates sky and creates uh, plants and vegetation and creates, he, he says it's good. He saw that it was good. And that I think part of it is that it was aesthetically pleasing. God looked at the flowers and the plants and the vegetables and the cowrie tree and saw, man, that looks awesome. But it was more than just aesthetics. It was he saw that it had been created exactly how he wished for the job he'd created it for. And this mother looked at her son, and he may well have been a fine-looking boy, but I think she saw that he had been created by God for a particular purpose, and that was good. Somehow, and maybe all it was was mother's intuition, we don't know, but somehow she sensed this child is worth saving. So she hides him for three months, and then she places him in this ark, and she places it along the Nile River. Now, this week, uh, a couple of uh, my sons and I sat down and watched The Prince of Egypt uh, again, that DreamWorks movie from a couple of decades ago. Really cool movie, but I really dislike how they do this scene. 
Because at this particular moment, she carries the baby down, singing this beautiful song, O River, O River, or something or other, and places it in the ark. And, and then she wades out waist deep, and she pushes the basket out into the rapids of the Nile. And it goes hurtling down the Nile, and there's crocodiles, and there's hippos, and there's ships coming past, and oars going, and it's going all over. And you think it's going to cascade, you know, go over it, capsize, and the baby's going to fall out, and finally it just drifts into a little thing. It's not what it says. Look at verse 3. She placed the child in the ark. So I think we need to think, you know, tenderness, care. And then it's the same word. You know, he translates it put, but it's the same word. And then she placed the ark among the reeds. So the same care and attention and love with which she lays the baby in the ark, she then lays the ark among the reeds. It's not pushed out into the, the river, kind of going all over the place. She, she carefully hides it among the reeds alongside the Nile River. But then something happens right at the end of verse 3 that's not recorded, but I think is implicit in the text. She walks away. It doesn't say that, but that's clearly what happens, isn't it? Can I ask those of you who are mothers, how hard was that? See, and that's where this quote from this book comes in, isn't it? In in anguish and despair, we release this child into the hands of God with hope and faith that he may be saved. I just skipped past Hebrews 11, which says, by faith Moses' parents hid him for three months. And I think by faith, this mother walks away from the reeds. Somehow trusting that God's got a plan. But she doesn't leave her child alone. Verse 4 tells us she leaves her other child or one of her other children there too. Verse 4 says the sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. So this is the first inkling we have. There's there's another sibling. There's also a brother later in the story whose name is Aaron. He's three years older than this baby. So this sister's older again. So maybe five, six, up to probably 11 or 12. Any older than that, and she would have been considered a woman and a slave off doing work. So she's somewhere, this girl, somewhere between maybe six and 12 years old. Now again, in the Prince of Egypt, because... The, the, the basket is whipping down the rapids of the Niles. The sister's running for all her life along the banks, trying to keep an eye on the jolly thing. But in verse 4, she just stood at a distance because it's carefully placed, and she just stands off to the side. So this is the story so far. This boy is born, and then the mother hides the boy, and now the sister is watching over the boy. And then we come to the climax of the story. Verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter. Now just pause for a minute. See, you and I know this story too well. We know how it's going to end. We, we think this is good because of how we know the story. But imagine you're hearing or, or reading the story for the very first time. Oh my goodness. The baby is hidden in a basket, in the reeds, sisters watching, mother's gone home in tears. 
and someone's coming, someone's walking down to the river. Who is it? Oh my goodness, it's Pharaoh's daughter. The only thing worse at this point in the story would be Pharaoh himself. Isn't it? This is the daughter of the tyrant who has ordered the death of every Hebrew boy. The worst case scenario would be Pharaoh himself. Next worst case is his close family and advisors. And it is a daughter of the Pharaoh that turns up on the shore. And verse 5 and 6 then move quite quickly. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her female slave to get it, and she opened it, and she saw the baby. Now, last week in Exodus 1, I suggested verse 7 is key, and there the, the narrator piles verb upon verb upon verb. It's happening again here. This is how these verses literally read. In, in the original text, she saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her slave and she got it and she opened it and she saw the baby. It's like verb after verb. She got it, she saw it, and they got it and she opened it and she saw the baby and then literally, this is what it says in the Hebrew, and behold, it was a crying boy. But she gets the basket, she opens the lid she saw the baby. I think she lifts the blanket to see, is this a boy or a girl? And behold, it is a crying boy. Now, freeze it there. Hit the pause button on the remote. See, again, you know the story well. But what's she going to do? What are the options at this point in a story? She could turn out to be exactly like her dad. And she picks that little sucker up and tosses him into the Nile. Or maybe she's got a a touch more pity than that. She is deeply committed to the policies of her father, but she can't bear it to do it herself, so she simply calls the guards. Take this thing away. Or maybe she's one of those people that just can't support what's going on, but doesn't really want to get involved and She just puts the blanket back and the lid on and just, okay, girls, let's get out of here. Let's just pretend we weren't even here. But have a look at the passage. Behold, it was a crying baby. I love the next line. Literally, and she had compassion on him. Later in the story of Exodus, God will reveal himself and one of the primary attributes he will use to describe himself is he is a God of compassion. And here is the daughter of the tyrant. She had compassion on the baby. And she exclaims, end of verse 6, it's one of the Hebrew boys. It's a fascinating and brilliantly written story. And it's almost as though she hasn't even yet had a chance to know what to do when verse 7 takes place. Then the sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, remember, this is a 6 to 12-year-old girl who has been told to stand and keep watch. 
And there's something in the demeanor of the princess of Egypt in her voice or in her body language or her facial expression or something that makes this young girl seize the initiative, walk through the slave girls, go up to royalty and say, would you like me to get someone to nurse the baby? This girl is awesome. And I wonder... And I can't prove this, but I wonder if the story is written in a way that the princess has just found the baby, realized it's a boy, feels compassion, but at this point hasn't even decided what to do yet, and the sister, this girl, forces her hand. Because what the sister is suggesting is that the princess saves the baby. Now, has the princess even decided that? We don't know. The text doesn't say But I personally think, as we go through the story, that the mother hides the boy and the sister watches the boy, the princess discovers the boy, but now we're back to the sister who protects the boy. It is her initiative and her quick thinking that ensures a plan is concocted to save the life of this child. And the princess, beginning of verse 8, says one word to her. Go. Sure thing, let's do it. Go. Go. And so this remarkable girl, look at what she does, verse 8. The girl went and got the baby's mother. Now, I've got to stop this. This is my sanctified imagination, but here's what I'm imagining. This poor mother is sitting at home. She has gone through a box and a half of tissues at this point, hasn't she? Is that fair? Her daughter bursts through the door, who is meant to be keeping watch. Mom, you have to come now. The Egyptian princess has come down and she needs you right now. You're going to feed the baby. And this mother must have been like, what? Hey, what? Stop, what? Hey, ah! I think this is so funny and so beautiful all at the same time. She bursts home. She grabs her mum. She takes him back. Pharaoh's daughter, verse 9, said to the mother, take this baby and nurse him for me. And I will pay you. So the woman, that is the mother, took the baby and nursed him. Where? At home. She got to take her son home. And because weaning, the end of breastfeeding normally in the ancient world was around three years of age, she got to enjoy her son for three years. Which means, by the way, she wasn't just nursing him, was she? She was raising him. She was singing the songs of her people. She was telling him the stories of their God. She was telling him about the great promises and the covenant that God had made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would learn about the land that God had promised to take them to. He would hear all what God had done as he created the world. And he would be filled with the faith of his forefathers. She didn't just nurse him for those three years, I don't think. I think she raised him. And she and her husband prayed over him. I think he, in those formative years learnt what it meant to be an Israelite, part of the people of God. 
And then the story concludes in verse 10. And when the, the child had grew older, maybe three or four years, that's the best guess, the mother took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I bet that was another day when the tears flowed and the tissues were used. But my hunch is there was less tears that day, wasn't there? Than the day at the river. Because leaving him that day at the river, she had no idea what God is doing. Leaving him this day at the palace, at least she knew he was alive and protected and there was a plan. Because the princess now adopts him. And he becomes, as the movie is called, a prince of Egypt. And she names him Moses, which is an Egyptian name. It means the son. So many of the pharaohs were Ahmosh, or Thutmose, or Ramos, which means the son of a particular god. She just names him the son, or my son. But his name, ironically, sounds like the Hebrew word to be drawn out of the water. Stephen in the book of Acts in the New Testament tells us that he was then raised in Egypt in the palace. Stephen says uh, when he was placed outside, that's Moses, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. One commentator, Philip Ryken, says it was customary at this point in history for foreign-born princes to be reared and educated in the Egyptian court. Like, if you wanted the finest education for your son, if you were nobility, anywhere in the world, you'd send them to Egypt to get educated. Moses would have been trained, according to what historians have found, in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and the fine art of diplomacy. So he was raised as a toddler in the home of his birth mother and raised in the faith of his forefathers Now he's been adopted by the princes of Egypt and he is given the finest education in the ancient world that a leader who will lead an exodus is going to need. Isn't that cool? I love the comment Phil Riken does next. In other words, he was trained for Pharaoh's overthrow right under Pharaoh's nose. This is a simply remarkable story. That when we step back and read it and try and pretend we don't know how it's going to turn out, you just get caught up in this, don't you? And these three incredible women who are the central characters of the story. And in this plot, when actually you just allow it to unfold, is actually full of suspense and full of surprise and full of irony. It is a staggering story. So, what do we learn from it? Well, on one hand, biblically, we need to understand that the story is unique. At one level, we don't apply this story to us because there's a uniqueness to what are called the birth narratives. A handful of times in the Bible, a significant character will come along and they will tell the story of their birth. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samson, Samuel, Jesus. And in many ways, out of all of the birth narratives, 
of the Old Testament, this is the one that points incredibly strongly to the coming of the ultimate deliverer in the New Testament, the birth of Jesus. So in some ways, this story biblically just points us towards Jesus. There's another deliverer coming. Practically, however, this story has a great deal to teach us, I think, through these three remarkable women. I mean, the mother displays what I've called courageous resolve. She simply will not lie down. She will not let her son be taken. And it's this incredibly courageous, and Hebrews 11 reminds us, full of faith and trust, resolve to do something. She did had no clue, I don't think, how it would turn out. But she was committed to saving her son. And this girl, 8, 10, 11 years old, this courageous initiative to honestly push the inertia of the story towards ensuring her baby brother would live. She is such a cool heroine of the story. And then there's this pagan princess who exhibits this characteristic that God himself will identify with later in the the book. Tremendous compassion that is combined with outstanding courage to defy her own father and bring this baby into his very home to raise. These are three awesome women, aren't they? That not only every woman can look at and go, that's cool, I want to be like that, but so can every man. These women are amazing. So that's biblically, this points to to Jesus and, and through all the birth narratives and practically we learn so much from these women, but I think the primary lesson of the story is is theological. See, theologically, these three women are incredible, but behind them all is a God who displays his sovereign power. Now, if you've paid attention to the story, which you may not have, because I think we all got involved in it, but if you quickly scan the text... Just cast your eyes over these 10 verses. How many times is the name of God mentioned? None. He's not there. His name isn't in the story. He's never mentioned. This whole thing happens without one mention of God. The three main characters are these three incredible women. But when I introduced the book of Exodus two weeks ago, I argued that the main character of the narrative is God Almighty. And what I would argue is that even though his name is not in the text, God is the main character of the story. God is the one controlling everything that happens. God is the one at work, displaying his sovereign power. I mean, you think about it. God's hand is all over the fact that these people, this couple survives three months with a baby in their home and it doesn't scream the house down. When the mother takes the baby down to the river, she places it in the exact location at the exact right time where it's going to be discovered. It just so happens that out of the entire royal household of Pharaoh, he had multiple wives, whoever he was. They all had harems. 
There would have been multiple Pharaoh's daughters. It's the one princess who will show courageous compassion on this child. The hand of God is in the middle of the story as this young girl not only has the initiative to step forward, but the wisdom to say exactly the right thing. God is at work in the story so that the princess not only allows the birth mother to raise this baby, she jolly well pays her for doing it. God so constructs this story that this child will be raised both with his Hebrew faith intact and an understanding of his identity as part of the people of God and then given the finest education the ancient world can offer. I know God's hand isn't in the story. I know God's name isn't in the text, but God's fingerprints are all over this tale. See, and that, I think, is the big idea of this entire thing. That even when God's hand can't be seen, his fingerprints are all over it. Even when you can't overtly see the hand of God, his fingerprints are all over the story. And this happens all the way through the Bible. I remember when I was a kid, my dad doing a sermon from the book of Ruth. Ruth is this Moabites, marries an Israelite boy. He and his brother and his dad all dies. He's, she's left with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Goes back to the land of Israel. Ruth goes with her. They're dirt poor. They've got nothing. She's gleaning behind the harvesters where they leave the corners for the poorest of the poor. That's Ruth. And remember my dad doing a message on this. And in Ruth chapter 2, in the King James Version, there's this stunning phrase. Here it is. Ruth went and she came and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. This is the King James. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. It's this Hebrew phrase. Her hap. The ESV translates, she happened to go into the field of Boaz. The NIV says, as it turns out, she went into the field of Boaz. But I like that. That's, that's what my dad preached on. Her hap. Her hap. She just happened to stroll into that particular field. Really? Do we, do we believe just in good luck? No. See, the narrator of Ruth is saying his fingerprints are all over the story. God's not in that verse, but God is all over that verse. See, what Ruth 2 and Exodus 2 and multiple parts of the Bible tell us is that our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. It means both he is over all things and he is fully in control of all things. And the Bible proclaims that beginning to end. Psalm 135 says, I know that Yahweh is great, greater than all the gods, and he does whatever he pleases. Paul will write to the Ephesians, in Christ we were chosen, predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his will. So even when you can't see God's hand in the story, his fingerprints are all over it. And that isn't just true in Exodus and Ruth and the Bible. That's true of your life today. 
even when God's hand can't be seen in your life in a particular season. His fingerprints are all over you. He is the sovereign God. You are fully in his hand. And even in those times where you don't have a clue what he's doing, where you can't discern his hand at all, his fingerprints are on you. So as the band comes back up to lead us in a worship response, I've been praying three things for us as I put this message together. Number one, I've been praying that some of you would feel encouraged by this big idea. I pray you'd simply be encouraged by the fact that God's fingerprints are all over you. That's true aesthetically because if you were in Christ, you were his masterpiece, according to Ephesians 2. But it's also true sovereignly. Wherever you're at right now, whatever season you're in, whatever space of life you're in, whatever you're facing, his fingerprints are all over your life and have been. And my prayer is that if you've never seen that before, you would start looking in the story of your life for the fingerprints of God because they're everywhere. And I'm praying that you would be encouraged by that. Secondly, I've been praying that because of that, you would trust him more. Because when life is tough and seasons are hard and the valley is dark, we often can't see the hand of God or know what he's doing. But by faith, Moses' parents acted. And I think when we understand that his fingerprints are on our lives, it makes it easier to trust him. Last year was one of the toughest years of my life. I don't want to repeat of 2019. And in the midst of that dark valley of burnout that I was in for a number of months, I could not discern the hand of God. I knew he was there. I never lost that confidence in him. But I had no clue what he was doing. I could not see where this was going. I could not see why it was happening. I trusted him in the midst of it, but I could not see his hand. But where I sit now, I'm still processing it. I'm still coming to grips with it. But as I look back on that valley, the forensics team has gone through and I'm seeing the fingerprints of God. And I haven't got it all worked out yet. And I don't understand it all. But he was there. Even when I couldn't see his hand, he was there. And now I'm discerning the fingerprints of God. And if you're in a dark place now, feeling like I can't see his hand, this is a call to trust him. So I'm praying you'll be encouraged. His fingerprints are on your life. I've been praying that you would trust him because his fingerprints are on your life. And most of all, I am praying that you will be more in awe of him. Because he is the sovereign God, big enough powerful enough, almighty enough to be fully in control of all that is. And yet close enough and loving enough and intimate enough that his fingerprints are all over your life. Our God 
is sober.